You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Do you understand what I have done for you? This is the question Jesus asked after he performed what appeared to be an embarrassing, humiliating task of getting down on the floor, picking up the feet of his disciples, and washing them. And we have sentimentalized this picture, so let's just bring it home a bit. This act is more akin to cleaning out the bedpan of a patient who can't properly get up and use the restroom than it is our modern concept of feet washing. In a world where closed-toed shoes are for the powerful, and in an arid climate where there was everything from manure to dead animals, the bottom of one's feet weren't exactly pleasant to touch. Can you imagine the picture for a moment? The twelve disciples, even Judas, the one who would turn in Jesus for a hundred bucks. Jesus took his feet and he cleaned them. He gave preferential treatment to the man who stole from the reserve account and was greedy enough to cash in for more by turning him in on phony accusations. But right before this happens, Jesus asked the question to the group, Do you understand what I have done for you? This is the central operating question of the passage in 1 Peter. And we're going to get to the specifics, and we're going to parse through some of the context, but at the end of the day, we are invited to hear the question that Jesus is asking. Do you understand what I have done for you? We cannot get past the exhortation of sacrificial love and open-handed deference if we cannot respond to this question. We say it often here, but it bears repeating. We don't live in the ancient Near East, and our values are different than their values, and our expectations culturally are different than their expectations culturally. And that's important to note because we are so tempted. In fact, I think it is inherently a default of our reading of the Bible to read our cultural values into the times of the Bible, and that is just not how it works. We have to hold in view the fact that the way the Greco-Roman world operated and the way the Jewish community operated is not the same as our way of operating. So though far from perfect, far from perfect, our society is much more marked by equality than the society the early church inhabited, particularly as it revolves around men and women, even though it still falls gravely short in Many cases on many occasions. Most of us want to harp on what this passage is saying, and we will get to that. But let's establish first what this passage is not saying. It is not saying that all women should submit to all men. This is a specific exhortation to a marriage, and even more interestingly, it's a specific encouragement to Jesus-worshipping women married to non-Christian men. This is not a blanket statement for gender everywhere. Number two, it's also not saying that women are inferior to men. Through the whole testimony of Scripture, through the person of Jesus, through the sense of the, of the history, and through the experience of our own church, I can tell you that men and women bear the image and imprint of the God of love uniquely and equally. It's also not saying that men are more spiritually mature than women. 
If anything, this passage comments on the fact that women in a Greco-Roman society are probably more drawn to Jesus because their lack of social standing in the empire. In fact, the faithful witness of a believing wife is the draw for a husband struggling to believe. And finally, it is not saying that women should stay silent when facing injustice. There is just nothing about that in this passage, and any use to justify physical, verbal, or emotional abuse or manipulation is a complete aberration of the text. So, now that that's out of the way, what is it saying? So to answer that question, let's break it down into a few categories. It's wives, it's husbands, it's Jesus, it's what, and it is how. So who is Paul addressing here? Contextually, he is actually addressing wives in the context of addressing first slaves and masters and then wives and husbands. And we're going to circle back to the slaves um, address in a couple weeks. But this is what he says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see you respectful and pure conduct. So context is always key. So let's just start here. First, the fact that a woman would adopt any religion other than her husband's violated the Greco-Roman ideal of an orderly home. Because happy homes were seen as dependent on religious forces. So disorder in the home was a threat not only to the family, but to society at large. A disordered home could mean significant cultural upheaval. Second, the husband and society would perceive the wife's worship of Jesus as rebellion, especially if she worshiped Jesus only. And if the wife persisted in her new religion to the extent that others outside the home learned of it, the husband would suffer shame, criticism, and ultimately embarrassment. And in a world where the cultural value of shame and uh, innocence is um, super high, that is a great cost. To the wife. Third, the wife's attendance at Christian worship gatherings would provide the opportunity for her to have fellowship with other Christians who possibly were not her husband's friends. And depending on the specifics of the social expectations, a wife's conversion to Christianity could have significant ramifications for her husband and her family. So it is a costly choice. For the wife to follow Jesus and Peter is addressing her. Now the writings of the Greek philosophers of the day do not address wives. But here Peter does. And he not only addresses them, he affirms the wife's choice to leave her former way of pagan worship. While at the same time instructing them to remain within their most basic relationship. So first century writers outside the scripture always and only address the top rung of the social ladder, encouraging those at the top to do a good job in maintaining their position of power. But Peter speaks to the ones who were already in a place of subordination and calls them to a crucified life. This is not the way of early century writings. The scriptures continue to surprise us and subvert the status quo. So he addresses wives and then affirms her agency and the moral responsibility. So as if addressing her didn't up in the status quo enough, 
He dignifies her personhood. The only legitimate reason for a command like this was that the gospel message had freed married women from seeing themselves as second-class citizens. They have made a personal choice to follow Jesus, and that choice has social consequences. Thus, Peter is saying that the living witness of a wife who loves Jesus will be the greatest apologetic to her unbelieving husband. Not compelling argumentation, not needless arguing, not stereotypical evangelism, just a devoted, faithful life. That wins the day. It is somewhat ironic. Actually, it is not somewhat. It is very ironic that we view this passage through the lens of the American culture with such discomfort and disdain because we look at it as an affront to women when in fact this particular passage in the Bible, in the letter that Peter was writing to the early Christians that was circulating throughout the Roman Empire was the banner of the feminist movement. It is just telling how we read things through the lens of which we inhabit in our culture. Then he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but I want to point out something. In Rome... Hair was as much an expression of personal identity as clothes were. So depending on your wealth, your status, or your age would dictate a lot of your hairstyles. Hair was an extremely erotic area of the female body, and attractiveness to a woman was tied to her hair much of the time. So it was seen as culturally appropriate for a woman to spend significant amount of time on her hair. Early Greek and Jewish historians have actually commented on the fact that mirror gazing and hairdressing were distinctly feminine activities. So here are some examples of Roman hairstyles. Beautiful. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. Um, I'm not going to say anything else about that. Um, so Peter, what Peter's saying is that you will not win your husband by external factors. The physical beauty is not what will draw them to Jesus, just as the physical beauty of Jesus is not what drew these women to him. It was his gentle heart. It was his heartbeat of grace that wooed him. This is how Jesus describes himself, right? Gentle and lowly in heart, patient, willing to lean in, the posture of humility. This does not mean that women and wives should not be assertive, initiative-taking, or decision-makers. It does not mean that wives take back seats in marriages. It means that what God sees, which in God's sight is very precious, is the faithful testimony of women with little power in a culture dominated by men. What God values is not what our culture values. Think for a moment of the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, this is the literal call to every follower of Jesus to be inhabited by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, consider the godliest women that you know in your life. Consider what marks them. 
What compels you to them? What draws you in? Typically, I would say 99% of the time, it has nothing to do with physical appearance. It has everything to do with the heart of God cultivated in their inner being, coming out in their personality. The imperishable beauty. What makes them worth following is that they are overcome with the love of God that is poured out by their life. This is not an exhortation to lay down in a passive sense. It's an invitation to take up the very heart of God in an active sense. And then he addresses husbands. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. The verb here is synoikeo, which means living together. And it was especially used for the context of marital intimacy, specifically throughout Deuteronomy. The exhortation here is that husbands are not to be demeaning, demanding, or self-serving, but rather considerate, sensitive, and understanding because of the value in which you see your wife, because of the honor that you esteem her with, you are to consider her. Honoring your wife. I wonder what you think that means. The translation for the word honor is actually closer to our word for preciousness. In a culture where romance was not the central reason for marrying, showing honor, showing the preciousness the belovedness of your wife would have been extraordinarily out of step with culture. So I want to take just a brief moment and discuss some of the early church ethics in light of the Roman Empire's ethics. Prostitution was a dominant institution in the Roman world that flourished in the light of day. The sex industry was integral to the moral economy of the classical world. In fact, the violent exploitation of women without any claim to legal protection, was literally invisible. In other words, our modern concept of sexual abuse would be nonsensical to a freeborn Roman man since he thought he held an unquestioned right to the bodies of lower status women, children, prostitutes, and slaves. So what we call abuse was to his mind the obvious use of Sex. And for a Roman woman in the culture, modesty meant faithfulness within marriage and virginity before it. For a man in culture, modesty meant adultery with a married woman would bring shame on you, so that was off limits. But a trip to the brothel might well be taken in the name of modesty. Because the call was not to chastity. The call was just to a little more self-control as it relates to married women. It has been said that there have been two sexual revolutions in the world, 60 AD and the 1960s. The message of the 20th century said that women can be as free as men. And the message of the first century said men must be as restricted as women. Given the complete sexual dominance of men in the ancient world, the coup of the church was as audacious as it was transformative. Paul writes to the Corinthian church that had all kinds of sexual immorality running rampant within the church. This is what he says. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. No one in the city of Corinth would have blinked at that. But then he says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. In the same way, a revolution. Paul is calling for complete mutuality. Today, today, consent is taken for granted. Of course, there is consent in marriage. But then it was absolutely radical. In the ancient world, gods were depicted as violent and power was in the hands of dominant men. And any type of immorality was based on the idea of losing your reputation more than it was a violation of law and certainly not a violation of someone's body. And in breaks the way of Jesus where marital intimacy is painted on the canvas of divine romance and where two equals unite in a sacred and unbreakable bond. And over the course of a couple hundred years, it would completely upend the entire industry of prostitution and bring it to its knees. If you want to track how Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire, do you know the number one historical way to track how it How it spread. Where did prostitution end? Because prostitution is not really about lust. It is about greed. So when the money dries up, the business dies. When the early church spoke of freedom, they coined the term free will. When we think of the term free will, we automatically think of free will and predestination and that whole conversation completely irrelevant to the original term free will in the early church. The early church referenced two people who they believed to have the ultimate free will. Martyrs and virgins. The early church would say, look, A new kind of humanity. People who are not enslaved to sex and are not enslaved to survival. They have freely chosen denial. They are the most liberated people on earth. It is literally the antithesis of our culture. It was crazy to call them liberated then, and it's crazy to call them liberated now, and yet it is freely chosen denial where we are not enslaved to our base desires that make us the most free. And then there is that reference to the weaker vessel here that is widely, widely viewed in scholarship as women being, on average, physically weaker than men and also not on equal footing as it relates to how society viewed women. And so the exhortation is actually Peter inadvertently addressing abuse. He is saying that your wife is to be honored and cherished specifically because the culture would say the opposite. Why? Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Peter says earlier in the letter that all those receiving this letter are born to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He is writing this to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. The heirs of grace are men And the heirs of grace are women. Those on the receiving end of the grandeur of God are both sexes, not merely men. The Spirit poured Himself out on the sons and daughters of God. 
And then it says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I say this with some significant fear and trembling, literally some significant fear and trembling. But after studying this, after praying through it, after listening, it appears to me, it appears to me that there is a direct correlation for how husbands treat their wife and God hearing their prayers. And that is unbelievably sobering. And I do believe God hears our prayers. I, I believe it now actually more than I ever have. But I will echo something Henry Blackaby said. There will be no revival in society without holiness in the leadership. Cry out to God all you want. He will not hear you put together all the phrases that revivalists of generations have all quoted. And it will not make an ounce of difference to the heart of God. God is looking for holiness. I was reminded of that quote this week, and I, I, I don't want to make this sound like it is some sort of game, or there isn't grace, as if God only listens to those who are well-behaved. The entire thing is built on grace, but it is grace received that leads to a life of holiness, a life of devotion. Jesus does not say, intellectually agree with me on how the world works. He says to Follow me. Walk behind me. Do as I do. Do you know what I have done for you? I want a church full of men and women who pray bold prayers and those prayers are fueled in the furnace of a holy life. And then we get to Jesus. Because when it comes to following Jesus, the crash course we get early on is this very serious call, and somewhat, I, I would say, an extreme call to die. We have normalized it and sentimentalized it. It is not normal. It is not sentimental. One of the ironies about being a Christian in the 21st century is that we have convinced ourselves we can know everything we need to know about following Jesus, not follow Him, and still be good. So much of our discipleship to Jesus is centered around our knowledge of Him. And so much of our lives and our lifestyles around following Jesus does not exactly mirror His. So if you consider all the ways that Jesus was human in the world, and all the ways we revolt against that, it is staggering. On the seventh day, this is on the first page of the Bible, on the seventh day God rested. And I think my superhuman abilities far exceed the Lord's. Jesus feasted on the scriptures, and I think I can nibble at the table and be somewhat grounded. Jesus spent significant time alone with the Father without noise or sound. In ten minutes, in complete silence, puts me in a space with my thoughts that bring up enough fears and anxieties where I'll just put my AirPods back in. Jesus fasted, and me going a few hours without food reveals things in me I'd rather not come up, so I fill myself with enough snacks to quench the hunger that goes deeper than my stomach. And Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, yes, and then He even submitted. He laid down His entire life for His Friends, And even mentioning the word submission in our culture brings up a level of increasing embarrassment and incessant apologies. Do you understand what I have done for you? He then says a somewhat haunting phrase that would have jolted the senses of his early disciples and should shock us. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the question to our marriages, by the way. 
Do we understand what he has done for us? I'm sitting in my office on Monday afternoon. I'm considering this question. Do you understand what I have done for you? And I have to be really honest. I said to the Lord, yes. And no. And I don't say this as an opportunity for you to feel sorry for me. I say this as an honest confession in the community attempting to practice this freeing and humbling discipline. In my pastoral professional response, yes. Of course I know what you have done for me, God. You lived a life I could not live. You died a death I deserved to die. You rose three days later to defeat sin, death, and hell and give me life both now and forever. I have that down pat. I have given my vocational career to introducing that truth to people over and over again. Wesley, do you understand what I have done for you? No. No, because the discussion I had with my wife a few weeks ago where I got my words so tangled that I couldn't just honestly say, hey, honey, I am so sorry I should not have said that. And that conversation followed me around a lot longer than it should have because of my unwillingness to come to grips with grace. No. Because my prayer life, both for my wife and with my wife, lacks. Not because I like discipline or because I don't want to, but because I'm not sure I fully recognized what you have given me. See, the ground of our marriage is not our commitment to one another, though we have that. It's not mutual affection we share, though we have that. And it's not some deeply rooted common interest, though we have that. The ground of our marriage is grace. Do you understand what I have done for you? I would like to begin to. Beginning to receive what God has done for us will lead us to a type of life where we know these things and then we do them. And do what exactly? Well, the heart of this passage is similar to the heart of Ephesians 5. The great marriage passage, one of the five forbidden American words shows up. Submission. Richard Foster says, Submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. The obsession to demand that things go the way we want them to go is one of the great bondages in human society today. Is there anything more demanding than our need to be in control? I find it especially true in parenting, but it is no less true in marriage. When you get married, one of the great things you lose is the loss of control. But what you gain in marriage is the invitation to unconditionally value another. He goes on to say, in submission, we are at last free to value other people. Their dreams and plans become important to us. We have entered into a new, wonderful, glorious freedom. Freedom to give up our own rights for the good of others. For the first time, we can love people unconditionally. We have given up the right to demand that they return our love. No longer do we feel that we have to be treated in a certain way. We rejoice in their successes. We feel genuine sorrow in their failures. It is of little consequence that our plans are frustrated if their plans succeed. We discover that it is far better to serve our neighbor than to have our own way. And is there anyone more neighborly than our spouses? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word to submit in Greek is hypotasso. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean do what you're told. More, it means to defer, 
to yield to respect. Being someone who submits, by the way, is all over scriptures and it's all over society. We submit to governing authorities. We submit to laws. We submit to workplaces and policies. We submit to bosses. We submit to red lights, most of you. Um, We submit quite often, actually. The problem is that so much of that is non-relational, so it's so much easier. Why is it? Why is it? That we applaud and even advertise the successful businessman who submits himself every Saturday morning to serve the homeless camp and yet potentially chastise him for going home and serving his wife. Why is it that we will applaud and celebrate the woman who submits herself to serve the needs of single moms in a community but chastise her for serving her husband as a weaker person? It's because submission, the art of denying oneself out of self-sacrificing love for another, is typically pretty neat and tidy in the weekly one-hour chat under the bridge. It's confined to time and it's confined to space. And we are good with that. It's bound submission because you know you're going to walk away. But it is a whole lot messier when you are living under the same roof and it requires a whole lot more of you than a 15-minute pep talk from the office to the bridge. Spiritual maturity does not happen in isolation. We do not grow spiritually stronger like we go grow physically stronger. In physical strength, you can go to the gym every day, work out by yourself every day, and watch your body change and form into the shape that you want, and no one has to instruct you, encourage you, or do anything with you. That is not how spiritual growth works. It is not a private workout plan. It happens in the confines and spaces of intimate relationships, and there are no more intimate relationships than sharing the same roof, the same fridge, and the same bed. The cliche is a cliche because it has a ring of truth to it. Why is it that the people we love the most are the ones we hurt the most? Spiritual formation is never void of interpersonal intimacy. In fact, that's where you get the most exposed. Our problem is, we think exposure is the problem. Exposure is not the problem. We all get exposed. Each of us have sensibilities poked. Each of us have insecurities enlarged. And that gnawing thought we can't shake of like, when I was 22, I was sure at 32, I would have kicked that. Intimacy is inevitably exposing, and it feels like in marriage, it's only gotten worse. But exposure is not the problem. It's what we do with it. In Karen Jobe's commentary on 1 Peter, she says, Marital love is understood as the resolve to live one's entire life totally committed to the well-being of one's spouse in every decision. Which brings us to the inevitable question of how. We love to ask this question because we just want to know what to do. Just tell me how to do this and I'll I'll do it. But Peter leaves much room for interpersonal expression, for freedom, for how these things get addressed. This is not a practical application of do's and don'ts in your marriages. Passages like this, passages like Ephesians 5 have been used as marriage manuals. That is not what they are. If we read them as marriage manuals, we will have missed the plot. The point is not to harp on 
who gets to make all the decisions and how compromises come to be or who gets to do what and when in marriage. Asking that question confines you to a list of endless rules. The point is to give you a new vision for your marriage, a new heart in your marriage. Marriage is a return to the garden. It's an opportunity to work together to image God to the world, to show how captivating and alluring God really is. There is a lot of ink, probably way too much ink, spilled on headship and submission outside the Scriptures. But we only have to go back to one scene in the Gospels. Do you understand what I have done for you? Do you get it? Power in the kingdom is not about ruling, it's about dying. Authority in the kingdom is not about dominating, but about submitting, deferring, and yielding. Here, Jesus is not only redefining authority, he's actually redefining love. In Jesus, we see the authoritarianism of authority laid to rest, and all the humility of submission glorified, and it's actually in humility where you gain real power. We have placed the wrong emphasis on the word submission because in a world filled with rights, we get very distracted with what we can do and what we can't do, what our rights are. The model we see in the entire New Testament is the wife giving herself to her husband and the husband laying down his life for his wife. And though done imperfectly, when a wife commits to love her husband with her whole being and the husband seeks to love his wife with his whole being, the conversation around submission doesn't really emerge. Because you are much, much, much more concerned without doing one another in honor. The point of the gospel is not that you carry out a list of performative duties in your marriage or you fit into some cultural stereotype of the traditional family values of the West. The point is to give you new eyes. To see your marriage and to see your spouse and to see yourself as one invited into the larger story of a grander marriage. This is not about the object you are looking at, but the lens at which you are looking with and through. Jesus gives us new eyes to see our spouse as a co-heir, as a partner. Someone we are journeying back home with. And walking out submission to one another is the call. And I know... We have a lot of single people in this room. And I realize that this teaching may be highly directed toward those in marriage. But the call to die is for everyone. And a call to submission is a call to everyone. So I just want to say a couple of things because I don't, we don't talk about marriage specifically too often in this community. So let me just say as we wrap up here, marriage is not the end goal. I love being married to Sarah. Uh, But it has not solved my problems. I love her. She has not solved my problems. She has exposed them. (laughs) Um, The issues I had when I was single are the same issues I have now. And I actually hate that I'm even up here admitting that. Unfortunately, actually, marriage has just put them under a magnifying glass. And the arc of the scripture actually leans towards singleness and celibacy, not marriage. Marriage is a great gift. It is a terrible God. Marriage has been idolized in the church as the highest calling, and that is just faulty. It is just faulty. It can be a noble calling, as can parenting. 
But to make a hierarchy of callings is to create a caste system in the church that Jesus actually came to disrupt. And this teaching is for you because discipleship to Jesus is about submission. It is about serving one another. It is about the family of God working together to receive his grace, to embody his life in the world. So whether you find yourself single, whether you find yourself married, the invitation remains the same. The how it gets worked out might look a little different, but the base invite everybody gets. A compelling life is one that is drawn in by the love of God that finds power not in controlling but in laying it down. Why? Because Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. Not to his spouse. He humbled himself to his enemies. And some of us struggle to do that in our marriages. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is why, because that is how we are saved. And it is how we are healed. It's the daily dying of self where we receive the loving gaze of God all over again. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Where in our hearts is there resonance with this and where in our hearts is there resistance? Would you continue to expose us so that we might receive the grace of God and be healed? You are doing a work in this body. A miraculous work. We want to lean into that even more. And specifically, Lord, for those of us who are married, might we ask the question, how are you calling me to serve my spouse? Where am I not submitting to you, Jesus? And where is there great opportunity for honor in this gift you have given? Thank you, Jesus, for grace. Lead us to a life of holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.